This may or may not be surprising to you, but we are living at a time when it is more dangerous to be a Christian than any other time in history. The intensity and the scope of modern-day persecution is unparalleled. Did you know that it is believed that more Christians were killed for their faith since the year 1900 than in the previous 19 centuries combined? The most conservative estimates, the most conservative, say that 4,000 believers are killed for their faith a year. That's an average of over 300 a month, or around 10 every single day. Less conservative estimates put the number around 100,000 a year, around 250 a day. And martyrdom is only the most extreme, least frequent form of persecution. Right, so this isn't counting the, the countless beatings, or abductions, or rapes, or arrests, forced marriages, destruction of property, slander, harassment, and many other forms of abuse that Christians face around the world. Now, the last thing that I want to be this morning is alarmist. Right? To, to bemoan that the sky is falling. Okay? That is the furthest thing from my intention. And you'll see why soon. But I do want to be a realist. It is naive to think that brutal persecution won't ever hit Canada. And there are forms of persecution, albeit weaker forms, but there are forms of persecution that we may be facing even now. And so, we come to a couple verses in the Bible which carry incredible relevance for today. For the multitudes of Christians being persecuted around the world, it is not exaggerating to say that these verses may just be the most important verses for them in Scripture. And it's not far-fetched to suppose that they may just become the most important to you one day. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 810 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 5, we've been slowly working our way through Jesus' Beatitudes this summer, in which he describes how God blesses certain people in amazing ways. Today, we come to possibly the most surprising group of people that God calls blessed, because it goes utterly against what we'd imagine a blessed life to look like. We imagine in our mind, what is a blessed life? What is a life blessed by God? This is the furthest thing we'd imagine. So, let's pray that as we read these words, maybe surprising to us, that we can truly hear them and understand them and be able to apply his words to our lives today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that your word has power, and we believe that your spirit is present with us. And so we pray that as we read your word, and as we come to you with open hearts, we pray that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be at work on each and every one of our hearts, that we'd be sensitive to hear from you, that we'd be ready, have soft hearts to to be molded by you. Lord, I pray that uh, even if these things are hard, that we would be willing and ready to follow you no matter what the cost. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
to sum up where we've been so far in the Beatitudes, uh, we've seen that the people who realize and admit and live out their great need for God are blessed. Look in verse 3. It says, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All these speak about God's, our, our need for God. And then, as they crave God's righteousness, these people are satisfied by God's fullness. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As God gives us himself, fills us with himself, we are gradually then transformed on the inside. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Then verse 10 brings us to one final result. Of this, But it's not a result inside of us. It's an outer result, a result outside. It's something that happens to us rather than in us. Look at it with me, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, last week we looked at being peacemakers, and as we did, we recognized that making peace can be painful. As we move towards the trouble in our lives to make peace, we can be inviting trouble into our own lives. And so, blessed are the peacemakers, very logically flows into, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, But is this not directly opposed to how we naturally think? Blessed are the persecuted? That doesn't make any sense. It's like an oxymoron, right? Persecuted people are maligned, they're marginalized, they're hurt, even killed. That doesn't sound much like a blessing. It sounds more like a curse. But here's Jesus flipping our natural intuitions, our natural opinions on their heads. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I would propose to you today that to be persecuted is to be hurt in any variety of ways for God's sake. To be hurt for God's sake, whether mortally hurt, or physically hurt, or verbally hurt, or emotionally hurt, or so on. Any kind of hurt for God's sake. So here's how I've phrased our main point for today. God blesses people who are hurt for his sake. God blesses people who are hurt or who are persecuted for his sake. Now, you might might wonder why I said for his sake and not for righteousness' sake, like verse 10 says. Well, in verse 11, which we'll read soon, Jesus talks about being persecuted on his account. On his account, which, and I believe that both verses really are talking about the same thing. They're equivalent. Both are referring to being hurt by other people because of your faith in Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, we studied verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. And now we see that those who pursue righteousness will often be persecuted because of that righteousness. If you recall, there were a few different distinct kinds of righteousness that we talked about then to describe this, this kind of Christianese word that we often throw around. And I, I gave them names. So first we talked about a righteous standing, a righteous standing before God. So this is, talks about what God does to us when we're saved. Right? We are justified and declared to be righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. So that's a righteous standing. Second, a righteous living referred to a life of growing in righteousness, being sanctified. So while we are righteous before God, we all know we're definitely not perfect yet. We've got growing to do. And so God wants us to continually grow to become more like Christ. And then third, we talk about a righteous thriving, talking about righteousness spreading out into wider society around us. When Jesus says... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He really could be referring to all of them, but I believe he's mostly talking about righteous living. Here, the way we live, we're persecuted for that. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, being righteous really means being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are blessed who are persecuted for being like him. Now, so we read this. Jesus is clearly referring to a very specific form of persecution here. Being hurt for his sake. So this is not referring to someone who is persecuted because they're a jerk. Okay? It is possible to represent our faith in rude, unloving, insensitive, or abrasive ways. And if you do that and people bite back, you're just reaping what you've sown. And actually, I'd hope that that opposition would shut you up before you do further damage to the cause of Christ. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're offensive or difficult. Neither is he, is this referring to people who are persecuted because they're, uh, to put it politely, unwise. All right. For example, I've seen some Christians post some really stupid stuff online. Okay, or they foolishly align themselves with something that does harm to their testimony. If you get mocked for lacking sense, that's not persecution. Okay. And also notice here, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for self-righteousness' sake. Okay? Sometimes we can bring stuff down on ourselves because we're just really holier than thou. We act like we're superior to others. We're not poor in spirit. We're pretenders. And it's no wonder that other people then react strongly to that hypocrisy. No, no, no. God says, God doesn't just bless any Christian who is quote-unquote persecuted. He only promises to bless those who are persecuted for the right reasons. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. John Stott explains this way. He says, This persecution is not because of our foibles or idiosyncrasies, but for righteousness' sake and on my account. 
That is, because they find distasteful the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst, and because they have rejected the Christ we seek to follow. Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. So what actually counts as persecution then? What does it actually mean to be persecuted? We might think this only applies to extreme forms of persecution, like churches burning or Christians dying. Right? But look at Jesus' description in the very next verse. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 11 here is really an elaboration of what verse 10 means by persecution. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, obviously, intimidation, violence, death, these are all forms of being persecuted. Right? But Jesus says, so is others reviling you. That is despising you or hating you. To look down on you, demonizing you. And so is others uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. So lying about you, slandering you, insulting you, belittling you, mocking you. Basically, any kind of harm or hurt that other people do to us because of our faith is persecution. Now, some forms of persecution are obviously more worse than others. But that doesn't mean lesser forms of persecution aren't. There's a, there's a spectrum. Okay? And so, to be honest, you may already be being persecuted by Jesus' definition. Reviling and uttering evil against believers is already prevalent all around us. Now, every previous beatitude we've looked at, we were meant to pursue on some level. Right? So uh, we should seek to mourn our sin. should seek to grow in showing mercy or making peace with others. So does this mean we should pursue being more persecuted? The answer is no. This is not something that we should force, provoke, or seek out. And that's not because we might be afraid of it. No, actually, we wonder, well, why not? Nowhere in Scripture does God say we should seek persecution or pursue persecution. And think about it this way. Hatred, violence, evil words, slander, and lying are all sins, which should be grieved. It is tragic when people react in sinful ways. But if we push for people to persecute us, we're pushing for them to keep sinning. And we're asking them to sin. We're even flat out provoking them to sin against us and against God. Colin Smith explains from another verse. It says, Christ does not say, the world is like a pack of wolves ready to tear you apart, so go ahead and let them do it. 
Instead, he tells us that in light of the hostility and danger we will face in the world, we must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Wise as serpents means we must be shrewd, learning to speak and act in the light of the threats and dangers we may face. And innocent innocent as doves means that we must be careful not to speak or act in a way that would unnecessarily provoke others to do us harm. Some wisdom there. I mean, many times Jesus says we shouldn't be surprised by persecution. But he never tells us to be angling for it. With all these, all the previous verses, I've tried to give you a number of application points. How to actually get here to do this. I can't do that here, right? Because we're not supposed to pursue it. Except to say that if you want to attain to the blessing of this beatitude without seeking persecution, all you need to do is live out the previous beatitudes and it will happen. If you live them out, it will happen. John Stott says, every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and every Christian is to expect opposition. Jesus said so both here and elsewhere. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it does not. Or you may recognize 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That seems pretty black and white. Now, I know that can bother us or or worry us because we think, well, what about when I'm not? I'm not persecuted. If If I'm not being persecuted at all, does that mean there's something wrong with me? The answer I'll give you is maybe. There are, there are a few different possibilities here when it comes to this verse. Maybe you are living a righteous life and you just haven't been persecuted yet. If that's the case, don't worry. <laughs> It'll happen. Your faith will be opposed in some way. Even if they're small ways. Maybe God is simply being gracious to you and protecting and preserving you for a time. We should thank him. Maybe you're living a a godly life and you just haven't recognized the persecution that is in your life. On the other hand, maybe you don't have a strong desire to live a godly life. Or you're unwilling to take any risks or make any stands. And that's the reason why you haven't been persecuted at all. And if that's the case, then yes, there's a problem. Smith says, when God's people are cold, confused, and compromised, reflecting little of their Father, the world will often ignore them. But when Christians get serious about pursuing righteousness, mercy, purity, and peace, they will get under the skin of godless people and soon find themselves facing trouble. This beatitude stands out from the rest of them as it's far longer than just one sentence, right? Jesus used three verses to get this across. This was an important enough concept that Jesus repeated himself, rephrasing himself so he could be understood. And then he made it super personal. Every other beatitude was in the third person. 
This is the first time the word you is mentioned. And he says it four times in one verse. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus was applying this final beatitude directly to his disciples who sat in front of him, likely hinting that all of this, these types of things were going to happen to them. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, Jesus isn't talking about just any persecution. It's only that which he says is on his account. So say, as a, as a hockey fan, I did some trash talk. Hey, the Leafs stink. They'll never amount to anything. Right, now, let's say a, a devoted yet delusional Leafs fan disagreed with me. <laughs> You're an idiot, right? Say that, say that to me. Now, I might be being reviled by them at that time, but I would be being reviled on nobody's account but my own. You bring it on myself. But let's say I were to identify myself clearly as a Senators fan. And I, and someone then trash talked me and says stuff like, you know, you had no cups since 1927. I mean, <laughs> Ottawa has no true fans. The like. Now I may be being reviled in a very weak way, of course, but I'm being reviled on account of the senators. Right? It's not just myself anymore. I'd be being insulted because of what I chose to identify myself with. Does that make sense? If we identify ourselves as followers of Christ and identify our lives with him, living for him, representing him, and then we or our faith are mocked, then we are persecuted on account of Jesus. And that's when Jesus says we are going to be truly and deeply blessed. Returning to one of our original objections, you may think, well, how in the world can this cause a blessing? Right? What good could ever come of persecution? I mean, Jesus isn't just saying we might be a little bit blessed or a little bit happy if we're oppressed. He's saying we're going to be really blessed. Hey, this is like a double beatitude. I don't know if you notice that. There are two blessed R's here. Two blessings given out. Philippians 1.29 also says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Granted. Like a gift. And 1 Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed. How is that possible? It is only possible if the outcome outweighs the pain. It is only possible to be a blessing if the outcome outweighs the pain. And in this case, it does. Colin Smith says, Great blessing and great reward are often found in the places of greatest difficulty. And that is certainly true here. 
Persecution can cause a lot of hurt. It needs to be overshadowed by something greater. So what great blessing could ever make being hurt worth it? Here's what we'll see. God blesses people who are hurt for his sake by rewarding them with his heaven. God blesses people who are hurt for his sake by rewarding them with his heaven. Look again at the end of verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now look down to verse 12. Right after saying, when you're false, when you're spoken of falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you remember what we meant by the kingdom of heaven? Or the kingdom of God? That's referring to the, to the realm over which Christ reigns as king in the world. So, one day we believe that this will be a physical, tangible kingdom. But for the time being, it is an invisible, spiritual kingdom that where Christ reigns over his people's hearts. That's the kingdom of God. Now, verse 10 sounds familiar. It's because it is. It's the same blessing that was promised in verse 3. Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus started and ended with the same blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Making the point that this is the most important thing of all, membership in the kingdom of heaven. So what aspect of the kingdom does Jesus promise those who are persecuted? Is he talking about the kingdom in its present form or its future eternal form? I think he can be referring to both. It's like he grants us citizenship of the kingdom now, and one day we'll be granted full access and full enjoyment of the kingdom. My Canadian passport contains a note of instruction inside that says this. Does the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada request, in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without delay or hindrance? Essentially, my passport is like a key to enter Canada on the authority of the Queen. It proves my citizenship and my right to be here and to live here. It's kind of like Jesus gives his followers passports to heaven now. Though we're not there yet. And it guarantees our place there one day when heaven comes down to earth. So we've received our passports, but we haven't received the kingdom in its entirety yet. And persecuted believers can experience more of the kingdom now as well, I believe. John Bunyan... You may recognize the name. He's the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. He's very persecuted in his day. He wrote this from a prison cell. Jesus Christ was never more real to me than now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. 
I never knew before what it really was for God to stand beside me at all times. And 1 Peter 4.14, which I partially quoted before, says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God's spirit rests on us. God stands beside us in the present tense. But Matthew 5.12 focuses in on the future experience of God's kingdom. Look again at verse 12. It says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, heaven there, of course, refers to where God lives, where God's people will live. And what will make the current pain worth it, Jesus says, is the greatness of the heavenly reward. Jesus doesn't say, your reward will be nice in heaven. Or, you know, I think you're going to like it. He says, your reward is great. And Jesus isn't one to exaggerate. Your reward is great in heaven. He doesn't tell us what the rewards are. But perhaps that's because they're too wonderful for our words to describe. Just an idea. If we tried to describe them, maybe our language would only detract from their glory. We can speculate, of course. We can look at the scripture and see different ideas of what it may be. Joy, riches, positions, power, pleasure, health, wonder. All unmixed and unspoiled by the sin and the pain and the loss and the sorrow of this world. Scripture says to set your heart there. Set your heart on things above. Because everything now will pale in light of then. Now, I don't know if you noticed, like I said, this is the first beatitude that we shouldn't pursue. But it's also the first beatitude with a clear command attached to it. Right? Something that, it, that Jesus says, you got to do this. Something to obey. Okay? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. And Jesus even says it two ways for emphasis. Rejoice and be glad. Okay? What matters more than the persecution you face is how you face it. And rejoicing is about the, the least natural reaction we would have toward the persecution, isn't it? And when someone hates on us because of our faith, or insults us, or worse, what, what's, what would be our reaction? Our first reactions? Self-pity? Woe is me. Sorrow? Anger? Fear? Maybe all of the above? I have a feeling most of us wouldn't be rejoicing. 
And say you go online and read an article there, maybe a blog post or a Twitter thread or watch a YouTube video. And then you start reading the comments that people are leaving at the bottom. You can almost always find someone who's mocking Christianity or mocking Christians. Or a few, maybe atheists who are ridiculing any kind of belief in God, any kind of belief in the supernatural. Like, you are ignorant morons clinging to an an archaic belief in a cosmic fairy tale. Or stop being such an intolerant, right-wing, fundamentalist, backwards bigot. And those are the rare PG-rated ones, right? The ones without profanity. The vitriol that is spewed towards God and faith out there is eye-popping. You don't have to look hard to find reviling or uttering evil or lying like Jesus talks about here. But how do comments like those make you feel? Right? Bothered, right? Maybe a little bit worried? What's this world coming to? There have been online articles or comments that I, I tell you have ruined my day. And these things are not even usually directed toward us personally. Imagine how you'd feel if someone wrote those specifically about you. How do you feel? And Jesus says, when things like this happen, I want you, my people, to rejoice. Rejoice? Really? I, I mean, I think lamenting would be a good thing to do. Uh, trusting God is an obvious thing to do there. But rejoicing in revilement? Being glad that evil is being spoken of you? That's what Jesus says. John Stott explains, he says, We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, still less pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should rejoice and even to leap for joy. This is a lot more than just not seeking revenge. This is a lot more than not responding with an angry, snarky rebuttal. It's very easy to do. This is actually getting to the point of not resenting the hurt in your heart and then actually being able to rejoice in the midst of it. How's that possible? How are we supposed to rejoice and be glad in persecution? I think that the only answer, the only possible answer, is heaven. An intense focus on what comes after the persecution. It's how many biblical heroes endured hardship. 
right? Desiring a, a better heavenly country. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's also how Jesus endured his darkest days. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy set before him. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. You may lose everything in this world and yet gain it all and more in heaven. So it's crucial. It's crucial that we learn to really cultivate a mindset that is fixed on Christ in his heaven. We have to do this. You may think, you know, heaven doesn't get me that excited. And neither do heavenly rewards. And I, and I get that. It's not easy to be, to anticipate an unseen future over the, the tangible here and now. Not easy. And the world around us certainly doesn't help. They don't, they don't focus on eternity at all. It's all about the immediate thrills, the immediate entertainment, the success, the progress we're making as a human race now. But if we are lacking what Jesus said should be our main motivation for rejoicing, then when persecution hits us, we will not be able to respond in the way Jesus wants us to respond. Instead, we'll be caught up in how the persecution is affecting us here and now. Our emotional hurts and pains, our anger over injustice, the things that we may lose now, the friends that you may lose, the status or popularity you have that may take a hit, the job that you may not be welcome at anymore, the freedom that may be restricted. Those losses can consume you unless you're focused on what you cannot lose. How can we cultivate that? How can we cultivate a, a heavenly mindset? There really are, are countless ways we can do so. From saturating yourself in the Word of God, these words prepare us for that. For, to, to continually praying to your Father in heaven, or asking for His kingdom to come, meaning that. To spending time with heavenly-minded people, and rub off on you, to pouring your life into things that are going to last forever. God's word, character, and other people. We must do whatever we can to dwell on the things of heaven and let them shape our worldviews. But ultimately, we need God's help with this. Because gaining a heavenly mindset is impossible without him. This is something that is totally supernatural that he has to work in our hearts. I mean, to rejoice as people mock you to your face. No one can do that naturally. Yet history is filled with godly individuals who by God's grace and by God's spirit have done just that. In fact... That's the final place Jesus points us to here. Not just to the future, but also to the past. 
Rejoice and be glad, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if you are, if you are hurt for God's sake, you are in very good company. Consider Abel, the second man born on the earth, whom the Bible calls a prophet. His brother murdered him. And 1 John 3 says, he murdered him because his deeds were righteous. So, Abel died for righteousness' sake. It's been going on since the beginning. Joseph was almost killed, then sold into slavery, unjustly imprisoned. Moses, one of the greatest prophets of all time, was rejected by his own people at times. Elijah was forced to flee into the wilderness. Nehemiah opposed and mocked at every turn. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. Daniel was thrown in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a furnace. The list goes on. And when we are insulted and hated and judged and belittled and worse, we join in their noble succession. It shows that you're being treated like they were. It's like a mark of authenticity, a sign of the genuineness of your faith. It's kind of a proof of who you are and where you're going. That you really are a citizen of heaven and that you're headed for the same rewards that God's prophets are enjoying right now. Lloyd-Jones comments and says, "This this is one of the ways in which our Lord turns everything into a victory. In a sense, he even makes the devil a cause of blessing. The devil persecutes the Christian and makes him unhappy. But if you look at it in the right way, you will find a cause for rejoicing and will turn to Satan and say, Thank you. You are giving me proof that I am a child of God. Otherwise, I should never be persecuted like this for Christ's sake. By thus persecuting you, the world is just telling you that you do not belong to it. That you are a man apart or a woman apart. You belong to another realm. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And, for us looking back now, we can't help but conclude, for so they persecuted the Savior who was before us. As we've seen, Jesus has really personified and exemplified every one of the Beatitudes so far. No one was more humble, or more righteous, more merciful, more pure, more peaceable. And yet, look at how the world treated him. Arresting, imprisoning him on false charges, like a criminal, though he had done no wrong falsely accusing him and then condemning him to to death, beating him physically, 
nailing him to beams of wood, letting him bleed out, jeering, mocking, laughing, watching him die. Matthew Boga says, those persecuted for righteousness' sake will inherit the kingdom of heaven because Jesus, who is wholly righteous and who is himself the door to the heavenly kingdom, was persecuted unto death for their sake. This all happened to Jesus for you. By God's grace, through faith, your reward is great in heaven because Jesus gave up his heavenly reward and took on the eternal punishment you deserve that you may be found in him. But catch this. More than that, you have a great reward in heaven because Jesus is not in the grave. Jesus is in heaven and Jesus is your great reward. you believe that Jesus is alive now and awaiting your arrival in heaven and your he's waiting as your great reward you believe that have you placed your faith all of your trust in the present and in the future in him he is the only way that you'll ever be considered righteous. You can't do it yourself. He is the only truth that you can stand upon that will cause evil to rail against you. He is the only life that can promise true abundant life now and eternal life forever. He's the only one who's fully deserving, and truly worth suffering anything for. So I hope you'll give your life to him today. Committing everything to his kingdom and for his glory. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus led the way here. The one who spoke these words lived them out until his dying breath. And then, so did his disciples, the original hearers of this message. Many of them would follow in Christ's footsteps no matter what came their way, even to death. And they too would find their reward was well worth the cost. And now, you and I are hearers of this message. What will our story be? Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, would you prepare us for this? We don't know what the future holds. In many ways, we may not feel ready, but would you prepare us? Make us ready. Help us to live lives that do not provoke opposition and yet do attract it. Lord, you are truly deserving and you are worthy of our whole lives. Every cost we pay. And we trust your promise that our reward in heaven will be great for for following in your steps. Help us now. Help us to worship you each day, no matter what that costs us. In Jesus' name, amen.